action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Once upon a time, back in the days between the Great World Wars, there was a humble professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford College. His name was John Ronald Rural Tolkien, for people were richly endowed with names back in those days. We know him today as J.R.R. Tolkien, in the vulgar, author of The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, and of course The Lord of the Rings. But back in the 1930s, he was a college lecturer known mostly for a paper he'd written on Beowulf. While marking papers one day, he was seized by inspiration and wrote the words, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And a cultural phenomenon was born. But the hobbit was only one story Tolkien wrote during this period. His publisher Stanley Unwin passed many of these stories he told to his children onto his son Rainer, who enthusiastically endorsed them, and encouraged Tolkien to work them into a collection of faux medieval fairy tales. If his interest had only gone in a slightly different direction, would Peter Jackson have instead directed a three-movie epic adaptation of Farmer Giles of Ham? Hi, I'm Philip Rice, and with me always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And this is What Mad Universe. Today, as we've done before, we're looking at a more obscure work by a well-known author. The writer is J.R.R. Tolkien, and the book is Farmer Giles of Ham. Originally told as a fairy tale to his children, uh, Tolkien proceeded to polish it and gave it a more scholarly sheen. And it was eventually uh, published with illustrations in 1949. Yes, it was a uh, it was a uh, book that he wrote kind of concurrently with The Hobbit, which is the interesting thing for me. Um, what was it, Phil? So this was one of Phil's suggestions this week. Um, and you you said you read this as a kid, or you? Uh, I read this uh, as uh, uh, in uh, 2001. Um, I was getting into Tolkien because the movie was about to come out, mm -hmm. uh, and I read The Hobbit, and I read Lord of the Rings, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I couldn't make it through the Silmarillion. <laughs> uh, I think I was too young for that at 13, so yeah. um, I, I still have never revisited it, so I want to do that someday, but... Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, when I was a kid, I had trouble with Lord of the Rings. I was about that age. I was a little younger. I, I, it took me a while to get through it. But um, but I actually really got into the Silmarillion, I think I was around 13, 14. Maybe I was a little older. Uh, but I yeah, I got into it pretty hard because the thing is it's it's the most mythological one he's done, the mm. most explicitly like old school mythology. Uh, and um, I uh, that was that spoke to me. Anyway, I, I really liked it personally. Um Anyway, so I picked up a bunch of books in a big splurge, and this is one of the only ones I actually read. But right. uh, of his uh, of Tolkien specifically, or yeah, just of Tolkien's. In yeah, um, you know, I got his uh, like um, 
uh, Forgotten Tales, was that it? Right, yeah. Uh, and uh, well, some there's other... The, there's the Book of Lost Tales. Lost Tales, that was it. Yeah, there's the, there's these other ones he did, like uh, Leaf by Niggle or something like no, that. No, I never read that one. Or his Santa Claus biography. There's a Santa Claus biography um, that he did. Or the one on the dog, Rover Random. Right. It's, which seems similar to this one. It's funny, the, the one he did about Santa Claus sounds a lot like the uh, stop-motion animated movie they did, Santa Claus's Life and Times. Uh, wasn't that based on the um, Frank L. Baum story? Oh, okay. All right. Fair uh, enough. It might have been. I All don't right. know. But he also wrote no, a no, biography I think you're of Santa right. Claus. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I guess around that time, Frank Albon's a little bit earlier than Tolkien, just a little bit. But I guess people like doing epic fantasy versions of Santa Claus back in those days. Grant Morrison's doing one. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got that going on as well. Yeah, something, uh, something I thought was interesting. Tolkien had an interest in dragons from a young age, obviously, because mm-hmm. uh, his, the first story he ever wrote... Uh, he was seven years old, and he showed it to his mother, very proud of it, and it was about a uh, green great dragon, mm-hmm. and his mother scolded him lightly, you know, not like punished him, but said uh, it should be great green dragon, because that's how English works. It's an unspoken rule that, um, and I read an article about why that is, I can't remember, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, like there's an order for... You, yeah, yeah, exactly, um, yeah. But uh, Tolkien was sort of dismayed by this and didn't write again for years, but... Luckily for fantasy literature in general, he ended up picking it up again. Mm-hmm. Yep, and he liked. He seemed to like his dragons because there's a dragon in the Hobbit. There's mm-hmm. a dra- there's dragons in the Silmarillion. There's dragons in this thing, and uh, that's just the staple of medieval literature. Yeah, I, but they are cool. <laughs> but they are very cool. Yeah. So this is. Um, it's not explicitly a children's book, though. It was originally made as. Uh, as a story to tell for his children, like literally a bedtime story. Yeah. Um, the uh, Supposedly the story I heard was that uh, they were out at a picnic and it started uh, pouring rain so they had to go under a tree oh, right. and wait yes, for a while. Yeah. And uh, that's in the that's in the foreword, I yeah. think. Yeah. And so he, he made up that story to keep them entertained while mm-hmm. they were waiting. But for expanded the rain. on it over the years. Right. Like this was this would have been in the twenties probably. Yeah. That uh, he first came up with it. As I understand, uh, he wrote it uh, sort of as a kid's book. He was sort of floating it to the publisher, but it was just a little short story. Yeah, I actually uh, the the edition that I have uh, that I got as a teenager uh, was was uh, actually includes the uh, uh original draft and i read that over actually just just today yeah um it's only 24 pages um so Mm. it's it's about half the length of the regular story if you count the illustrations yeah Um, yeah the original plan i think was um when he went to unwin they liked it uh he he basically said write you know, three or four more of these, and we'll collect mm. it into one book, and they'll all be kind of linked together. And yeah, t- the, tales the idea of the that they kingdom. would be set in the same, yeah, Middle Kingdom tale. Right. Yeah, Tales of the Middle Kingdom, which is the setting, but it's it's explicitly in England, unlike, right. unlike Lord of the Rings. Right. It's set in, in uh, basically faux medieval. It's supposed to be set in the period bef- just before King Arthur, I believe. No, yeah, the, it's, uh, it's between the reigns of King Cole and King Arthur, which would put it in the... Uh, Oh, I, I is that the is that the old King Cole of yeah. the stories? Really, yeah. is that where that comes from? Yeah, it's a, it seems to be. A, I I didn't really look much into it, but it is that. Mm. Um, I it's spelled seems, what? How's it spelled? C O E L. Yeah, right? yeah. But and it got changed obviously over the years mm-hmm. as things do because huh. you know fifth century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I yeah. guess it would be third century. I don't know. They, I they said I think uh, yeah it's a little vague, but I think they said third century for Cole and. 
pegging Arthur as sixth century, although Late he's fifth, basically early sixth. Yeah. yeah, but Arthur's basically fantastical. Oh, so they're it's kind of hard to. Yeah, it's kind of hard um, to pin down. Uh, exactly. All this comes from uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was uh, quote historian who just made up a lot of stuff. Right, but he was a big uh, influence on uh, Arthur. Well, he on Arthur subsequent Arthur stories. Geoffrey of Monmouth uh, came up with the idea that. Uh, that Britain was founded by a uh, Roman citizen named Brutus. Yes, who, yes. Who arrived on the island yeah. and uh, slayed all the giants who were living there. Yes. And uh, uh, named it after himself. So Brutus, Britain. Britain, it, yeah. It's Br- completely made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. I'd, this I'd isn't Brutus it. from the, the uh, Caesar thing. Different Brutus. It was right. a common name, but right. yeah. Well, it would have it would have had to be... Oh, I guess technically it could have been around the same time because Caesar no, did no, different conquer guy. Britain. But yeah, no, I know it's not. This yeah, no, was I, uh, he was uh, supposedly uh, the uh, great grandson or grandson, something like that, of Aenid from the right. Uh, Annas yes. from the Aenid. Yeah, well, the the Aenid is the Aenid's linked to some interesting stuff because that's also the idea that they founded because Aeneas Aenus was. Uh, basically the founder of Rome, or the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Romulus and Remus who yeah, founded Rome, yeah. and that Rome was, like, th- I think it's been argued that... The oh, Aeneid- it was definitely uh, a pro-Roman propaganda. Right, but, well, but specifically the argument was that it was written to justify Rome's invasion of Greece as saying, like, we're revenge for the Trojan War, Yeah, I, I think so. I'm right. not sure if that was a specific uh, cause, but it was definitely written by Virgil as mm-hmm. pro-Roman. You know, right, right. But yeah, the thing about yeah Brutus being uh, being the founder of Rome, and Brutus I, is I mentioned in that. the uh, in the foreword. So right. all this is like this is uh, unlike uh, Lord of the Rings, like we've said, this is set firmly in the real world, but a fantastical version of the real world. Yeah. Well, it started. It, it, it let's uh, let's sort of talk about that a bit. It, it started as as we say a, a kid's story, and he started talking, uh, just telling this goofy story. And he talks about, for instance, a blunderbuss early on. Yeah. Um, and um, that, that's a type of gun that was invented in the. Uh, in the 1600s. Right. That's exactly. It's it's anachronistic. And those are the kinds of guns where you basically, it would be the big wide muscle gun where you just load it with whatever garbage you had. Mm. And specifically put in says black bits powder. of chain and bits of yeah. pottery. and Right. And it would, and he even says in the book, and it would sometimes hit its target. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely useless. But then he started to lock it down a little more. And it's funny because Tolkien was very notable in the other books for... Uh, for really trying to nail down historical discrepancies, even though he was creating a fantasy world, mm-hmm. he actually went back and rewrote the Hobbit. What, like, of course, Hobbit was rewritten famously to tie it more with Lord of the Rings. But uh, for instance, he put he took out in the original draft in the original version of the Hobbit. Uh, there's a talk about. Uh, tomatoes i believe yeah which are of course a new world crop so they wouldn't have existed in middle earth which is still supposed to be like neither England. with tobacco tolkien i well you know <laughs> but yeah well, you could argue that that wasn't real tobacco anyway yeah, it's but pipe yeah. weed yeah. Yeah, yeah but uh uh tomatoes uh i I did know that story, but it, and I found it funny because uh, tomatoes are explicitly mentioned in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Right? Are they? They're, yeah, they they're cooking tomatoes at one point on the oh. fire. Well, because I mean that's a very English breakfast thing to eat. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, uh, but, but it, I, he, I I don't know if that was an intentional nod to that or if it was just them right uh, 
just adding stuff because well, you know yeah. the movies added stuff. Yeah, because I mean it is it is in the original draft. It's just of the Hobbit. Yeah. That he changed it later, and of course the original draft of the Hobbit is more the more notable change is that in the original version he beats uh, Gollum at the Riddle Game, mm-hmm. and Gollum just agrees to let him out, and they part, and there's not a big fight or anything. Uh, that actually gets through, and then in the in the forward to Lord of the Rings, Tolkien describes that as. Uh, that was the original story Bilbo told Gandalf until he pushed him on it, and then he realized that he'd lied and actually he'd sort of run off, and that that was an early sign that the ring was corrupting his mind, basically. Mm-hmm. But it was literally the earlier draft of The Hobbit that he'd gone in and rewritten. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how he explained it. It's it's like but a... It, it should also know, and most people uh, know this, but The Hobbit wasn't originally meant to be set in Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. Um it was originally just a standalone fantasy story, and as he was writing Lord of the Rings, he realized that the ring, the magic ring, which was just a magic ring, mm-hmm. uh, was the one ring right. uh, of, uh, of his Silmarillion, which he, he had been writing all his life, right. uh, and never released until after his death. Right. Uh, so he realized, uh, as he was writing Lord of the Rings, that this was a much bigger story, and that's why it took so long to right. come out. Um, and uh, actually, that's part of why Farmer Giles of Ham was published when it was, because right. uh, the publisher was looking for a, uh, a uh, Hobbit follow-up. Yeah, yeah. A follow-up to the Hobbit, and he was taking forever to write Lord of the Rings, right? Which well, paid off. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, I mean, it was it was. A, I mean, even Far- Farmer Giles of Ham took like a decade to write, from what I can tell. Yeah, because yeah. he but wrote he had, it down. He had most of it, from what I understand. Yeah, he wrote, he told it this as his quick story. He was going to write a bunch more stories. They took a while, and I, I mean to be fair, World War Two happened in yeah. there too, so that kind of delayed it. Uh, but he he went to uh, I believe it's called the Lovelace Society, which mm-hmm. was a philological or historical society of some kind. Uh, he basically told the story, which apparently had them rolling in the aisles because it's they're a bunch of medieval scholars, so it's yeah. a bunch of medieval scholar jokes uh you know he expanded on it and basically presented it as if it was an old uh folk tale that had been passed down by someone like jenny of Mod- well Jeffrey the uh the forward was added much later actually just right. before or soon but be- soon before publishing right but it was still very much written in that style but what i mean is it, he wrote it like he, he it was a kid's story that he was telling yeah and this is he'd adapted it to be like for a bunch of scholars as if well here's a story i dug up and here's yeah. the version i'm telling well, basically. yeah well it has all these the, scholarly oh, jokes and this kind of meta framework for it which is in the final book basically mm. yeah it's in the book in the forward right which like i said well, not just added- the forward but i mean the book it's the book itself is written almost as if it's being it wasn't written straight up as a kid's book at that point it like it is but it, yeah. it's got a sense of like knowing skull as they point out in the foreword in the earlier version it was like well if the you know it was being told familiarly as if it was being told by him to his kids yeah. and he refers to himself as daddy and stuff in the yeah. stories whereas this is more a bit more of a you know, here's like a scholar writing down a folk tale is kind yeah. of the approach he's taking and, and that's similar to what he would take with uh, the idea that the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are translations right. of an ancient text that was passed on through the Red Book of Westmarch. Right. Yeah, there's all these weird uh, rules in The Hobbit. Like, he says the original pronunciation of Hobbit is Hobbitla, which means whole builder. And, like, he's got all this this yeah. architectural, you know, uh, linguistic stuff going on with all but the But as characters. I was saying earlier, The Hobbit wasn't originally set in in the same setting as the, as the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Actually, early drafts, not ones that were released like the one with the different riddle contest but uh early drafts of the hobbit actually uh mentioned china oh uh, okay yeah there's uh uh there's a uh the only remaining bit of it is describing the wereworms 
mm. uh, which he describes as uh, like a faraway thing. Right. But uh, in the uh, the original thing, it says the wire worms of China, which is probably a reference to the Mongolian death worms. Hmm. Interesting. And of course, the wereworms became giant weird worms in the hobbit movie but right anyway well in the it's interesting in the in the uh even in the published version of lord of the rings uh he mentions like as a as a simile but he talks about a a railroad it it blasted through or like a locomotive or something like that okay which which, and i mean it's not it's it's not any of the characters in the story saying that it is the authorial uh Mm -hmm. comment but it still doesn't quite fit because if it's supposed to be a translation of the red book of red march Written, I believe, by Frodo himself was the rationale yeah, for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and ended by Sam, right. who wrote the last bit. Right, right. And because Hob- uh, yeah, because Frodo was gone by that point. But yeah, so so strictly speaking, that doesn't quite add up. And he was actually pretty meticulous about going back and fixing that stuff. But you can really tell with the first like half of the first book of Lord of the Rings that he had not intended to write it. It was just a kid's book sequel yeah. to The Hobbit, and then it switches gears and becomes a, a real sequel to And he didn't have the heart to remove some things. Like, Tom Bombadil probably would have... <laughs> like, I, I don't mind Tom Bombadil, but he doesn't fit in this story. Right, yeah. He's, he, he's, he's more of, like, he should have gone into a different book. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he was. Yeah. He's. He. He definitely sticks out as being someone who belonged in the Hobbit and not, you know, Lord of the Rings. Basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, that's that's the like any uh, even purists uh, who say that you should you should have adopted adapted Tolkien slavishly don't yeah. say you should include tom bombadil <laughs> well it's it like a lot of and i mean as with the movie when they did the scarring of the shire they had all this problem with uh getting everything in even though the scarring of the shire a lot of people would argue is one of the most crucial aspects of the yeah. book but it's it's all falling action at that point because they've already saved the world yeah. and everything so it is a very difficult that's what that's one of the reasons a lot of people said lord of the rings can never be adapted because you've got you know a good half hour of stuff that happens after uh you know the the supposed climax of the story but of course that is crucial to the theme and everything that yeah. he, was, he was saying in the story the idea that you go home and it's changed after you come back from a war basically mm-hmm. um so that, you know, he, and of course he was never writing, of course movies existed, but he wasn't, he was never writing it in sort of the cinematic way that we're used to. He was still in the first generation of people who'd seen a movie, basically. Mm. Um, uh, I recall, uh, this is where, we should get back to the book soon, yeah, but cool. I, I recall that there was, uh, he reviewed a screenplay for an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, and he right. complained about them using eagles as taxis, mm. and uh, <laughs> everybody was eating ridiculously long sandwiches. Okay, <laughs> that's a very strange detail, and oh, I it's not I elaborated that. on that. But that was a big thing in fandom when I was uh, when I was getting into it. There was just jokes about ridiculously long sandwiches. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yes, that was a big weird obsession. And he also had a big moment where he he very firmly said, "I never want Walt Disney to adapt this." Basically, mm-hmm. because he he like as an as an animated movie is how he was thinking. Because he said he'd make it too cutesy basically mm-hmm. um that he was too quote vulgar my favorite idea of of early tr- earlier trying to adapt lord of the rings before it actually happened was uh the idea that they were apparently going to get the beatles to play to be in lord of the rings oh i remember that yeah <laughs> with uh i think john as gandalf george as uh, as strider uh paul as 
Frodo and Ringo as Sam would have been the cast if they'd done that. It, that would have been so weird. It would have been really, I would have been amazing, but it definitely would have deviated from the book yeah. pretty heavily. It would have been more like, I mean, they basically made Yellow Submarine, although that's that's a different, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't, that, it didn't become Yellow Submarine by any means. I, and of course, John Borman, uh, who did Excalibur, that did start out as actually a, an adaptation oh, of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he said, I, well, he basically said, I want to adapt Lord of the Rings. He realized, again, there's all these problems with adapting it, plus you've basically got to make three movies. So he basically said, well, I'll do Excalibur, and I'll do King Arthur instead. And That's Excalibur. sort of like uh, George Lucas not being able to get the rights to Flash Gordon, so making Star Wars. Right. That's one version of right. how it happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, anyway, Farmer Giles of Ham. Yeah, so tell, tell us, let's, uh, let's summarize the story. Phil, if you want to summarize uh, uh, Farmer Giles of Ham. Okay, well, it's fairly simple. Uh, it, it starts off with a giant whose uh, name has been lost to history. Uh, he loses his way and wanders into uh, into the uh, populated areas, and uh, he wanders into uh, Farmer Giles's uh, region. And Giles's dog Garm, uh, named after the uh, um, most of the characters in the book, are uh, have Latin names because England was still Latin at the time. Can I can I say yep. Farmer Giles's full name? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So he's listed. He's he's his name is strictly listed as. Egidius Ahinobarbus Julius Agricola de Hamo. Mm-hmm. And they're all apparently references to farmers and things. Yeah, it means um, Giles the red-bearded something farmer of ham, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so uh, his, uh, but his dog uh, is actually named after the uh, a Norse legend about a, um, well, it's, uh, it's the dog that guards the underworld, basically. Oh, okay. Guards hell. Right. Um, and, um, uh, Cerberus is the dog. Oh, in Norse mythology. Yeah, Norse Ah, mythology. Yeah. Uh, it means, it means, uh, howler or something like that. Okay. Anyway, um, so the dog, uh, runs to Giles asking for help. The dog can talk, uh, because uh, it says dogs could talk in those days. Yeah, it reminds me of the Gary Larson cartoon about the guy who builds a translation helmet for dogs, and the dogs are all running around going, "Hey, hey, 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 hey!" There's also <laughs> That's a Dexter- about as yeah, useful there, as Garm is in this uh, story. There's also a Dexter's Lab episode where uh, Dexter gets annoyed that, his do- that he adopts a dog, and it it keeps barking at him. Mm-hmm. So he he. Ad- he builds technology to get the dog to talk, but the dog just says, "Hey, look at the thing! Look at the thing!" Right, exactly. Squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. So, uh, Garm, who says "help, help" all the time, mm-hmm. uh, goes to Giles and says, "There's a giant, and he's gonna, you know, go on his property." So, uh, Giles gets out his blunderbuss, and you know, sort of, he's not like a brave guy. Right. He gets braver as the story goes on, but he's more like he's more like Bilbo. He's at the start of the story, he's a very Bilbo-ish, Bilbo-ish character. I picked up. Yeah, I think he's a bit grumpier than Bilbo. I would say. Oh yeah, he's kind yeah, of a, and a little like Bilbo's a fundamentally good heroic person. He's just he's a little guy who's never been tested, essentially. Okay, Whereas, well, I mean Bilbo at the start of the Hobbit. Right. Yeah. No, he's not. He's an unlikely hero for sure. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know, he's a rustic, uh, you know, chubby guy. So mm-hmm. it just reminded me. Anyway. Um, so, uh, uh, Giles, uh, ends up, uh, shooting the giant in the face with his blunderbuss, um, and makes him fall flat on his back, but the giant, uh, gets a nail caught in his nose and thinks he's been stung by a horsefly, and, uh, wanders off, and everybody in the town, 
that uh, Garm had alerted uh, think that uh, Giles actually managed to scare off the giant. The giant didn't know that there were even people there, but anyway. Um, so Giles becomes a local hero, and uh, at the same time, the giant who has returned home starts telling everybody about this wide-open area with no people, no knights to kill people, uh, to kill monsters, and, you know, plenty of cattle and things. So uh, a dragon uh, named... Can you pronounce the name? Chrysophyrax. Okay. I believe is the pronunciation. <laughs> Yeah, so Chrysophyrax, uh, uh, which means guardian of gold, by the way, in Greek. Yeah, um, and he he also has the uh, uh, subtitle Dios, means which means the rich. Right. Um, this is Tolkien was a linguist, so yeah, he, he dwelled on all this stuff a lot. Yeah, yeah, even in his his uh, you know non you know lord of the rings type stuff where he invented his own language it was still there's lots of linguist jokes in this well this is what i'm saying where it feels like it was a scholarly retread of a of a fairy tale yeah so um uh uh giles is uh pressured into uh oh he he also had been sent a sword by the king as congratulations for scaring off a giant the sword as it turns out was a magical sword that belonged to a dragon slayer uh hundreds of years ago um and the sword uh it's called i can't pronounce the sword's name <laughs> Cowdemordax, which, which means, means tailbiter yeah right which we'll call it tailbiter uh and tailbiter is an enchanted sword uh somewhat like sting it warns of a specific threat that's coming sting warns of orcs but uh tailbiter leaps out of its scabbard when a dragon is within five miles right and in earlier drafts, it was 100 miles, which would be useless because, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, Anywhere there's a dragon. And then it was changed to two miles, which would also be useless because the dragon could just sneak, you know. Yeah, would like, be almost on top of you, basically. So, you know, happy medium. Um, yeah, so the uh, so Giles is pressured into uh, by the village because of his heroic uh, reputation and his sword uh, to uh, go slay the dragon. So they put together a... Uh, bad armor form, hastily made armor, uh, made out of uh, just mail stitched into a leather jerkin and thing, you know, other pieces of metal. In the first draft that I read, it was uh, actual chains, so it was literally chain mail. I wish he kept that actually, because that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so uh, it turns out that the uh, the sword was able to do most of the work. So uh, he managed to threaten the dragon into uh, traveling to town. And uh, the dragon promised that if they let him live, uh, he would give them all their money, all his money, because uh, dragon horde and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but he lied because he's a dragon. Right. And they allowed him, they foolishly allowed him to fly off. Yeah. Um, well, they said they we place solemn oaths upon you yeah, to come back yeah. and he has to swear up and yeah. down. That he's he also... He offered um, half price for children, which was a, a pun on the idea of, you know, admittance for right. for a theater or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in this case, he's literally giving, you know, for sorry, half price for every child he killed. So like a price for every man he killed and half price for every child. Right. So that's a little dark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, the, the dragon flies off and uh, the king arrives in town and, you know, expects the money and wants to uh, tax it 
to hell because he insists that it was probably stolen from his ancestors. Right. Um, yeah, the king's kind of slavering the whole time about all the money he's going to get from this. Yeah. So uh, eventually... And they, they talk about the king being broke too, basically. Yeah. He gave... I, he just was waste, wasted his money, mm. basically. Uh, do you have the king's name written down? Uh, it is... Um, king Augustus Boniface. Fascius. Yeah, and he has like Rex et Tyrannus. Yeah, he has a bunch of names that are all very unflattering. Apparently, if you read the original <laughs> okay. languages, um, well, it means king and tyrant. Basically, yeah, yeah. But he's got a bunch of other names that are all just sort of apparently have bad connotations. Like are you know on the surface uh, complimentary, but apparently have bad connotations. Hmm. So it's uh, more linguist jokes. Yeah, this is uh, what the Lovelace Society thought was so hilarious. <laughs> basically. Uh, so, uh, uh, the king ends up, uh, recruiting Giles along with all his knights to go after the dragon, but, uh, uh, as they're arriving, uh, the dragon hears them coming because they're singing songs, and Giles's horse, uh, his gray mare actually, uh, lags behind, which ends up saving his life because the dragon kills most of the knights and the rest run off, but, uh, Giles manages to, uh, uh, take advantage of the sword which once again uh the sword unlike sting is actually f- sort of fights for you if there's right. a dragon involved so like it, it does it, i think it describes it as uh doing its best in un in un uh in unskilled hands that was it um so uh giles uh uh ends up uh stopping the dragon and this time ends up uh uh actually strapping all the the dragon's treasure to its back and puts it into town you know drives it into town yeah they have a whole negotiation basically. yeah uh yeah the dragon comes off as kind of a like a i don't know a penny pincher basically. yeah yeah and he's talking about oh i'll be br- oh this will this will bankrupt me yeah like, you're but a dragon th- what are you spending it on <laughs> well they like to keep it i know that's uh, the whole point yeah. but uh uh but Giles actually lets the dragon keep a little bit, which uh, the narration says was uh, uh, was good because uh, most knights would have taken all of it and then there would be a curse on it. Right. Uh, dragon curse, which went again once again and happens in the Hobbit. Though that's that's standard in like yeah. since uh, the Ring cycle. So. Right. I'm actually. I mean, it seems to me the dragon could have put a curse on it anyway, but. <laughs> He was grateful. I, I guess he was, yeah, there you go. Because he got to keep some of it. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, and the dragon actually uh, helps Skyle defend his land against the king coming in to uh, take all it away again. Right. And the dragon actually stands along with Guile, uh, Giles uh, and uh, stops the knights from attacking and all that. Um, and it, so, Guile, what, sorry? It sort of becomes like Davy Crockett and the bear, almost. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. Supposedly, Davy Crockett stared down a oh, bear and the yeah, bear. Oh, yeah, okay, killed him his... a bear when... But no, didn't kill him a bear. He's, st- he st- well, it depends on the version, but... Killed it's a... him a bar when he was only three? Is that how it goes? That's I don't a song. Know. I thought it was that he stared down the bear and the bear ended up becoming his pet, basically. It but... probably got exaggerated. <laughs> well, no, none of this actually happened, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it probably got further exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, into the song version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, so Giles, uh, ends up becoming, uh, a lo- not only a local hero, but he's, he gets a title and eventually becomes king of the area, mm-hmm. and his family becomes the Wormings, because, uh, uh, Worm Dragon, mm-hmm. and, uh, eventually Ham becomes Worming Hall, right. which is still the name. 
apparently that's a real place. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so this is an origin, a uh, name origin sort of thing, but a fake, you know. Yeah. Fake story about. Yeah. Well, doesn't he also say something about Ham becomes the Thames or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's because of the Tame Dragon. Right. So, uh, Tame becomes Thames. Yeah. Or Tem. Yeah. Uh, Thames is elsewhere, but it's, oh. it's similar name. Oh, it's not actually the same as the River Tem? I think it's related. Oh, okay. All right. Well. That's Thames. Yeah. It's with an S. So Right. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, but this is all the mutation of language. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So. But yeah. they're related. Yeah. Tem and Thames are related, but oh. different. Okay, cool. To my knowledge. I'm not English, obviously. Yeah. Uh, well, there's all these... There's a lot of weird linguistic quirks in English, uh, in the, Br- the British version of English language. Anyway, so... Uh, and uh, Giles lives happily ever after, basically. Yes. Uh, and um, there was a sequel plan that's... There's, like, four pages written of it. It was included in my edition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's about his son, right? Yeah, it's about his son who's named Georgie, probably a reference to, to St. George famously you know killed the last dragon in england mm-hmm. um and this story also uh uh i guess we could uh talk about literary connections to other stories that might yeah. have inspired it uh possibly uh inspired in at least in part by the reluctant dragon mm-hmm. by How does, uh, but kenneth graham yeah kenneth graham. he wrote the wind in the willows too oh okay um but i didn't connect that but yeah, yeah I, I i read it yesterday right uh the reluctant dragon how does that one go again how's that um go? well it's about a friendly dragon who just wants to do poetry right and um a kid who befriends him mm-hmm. and then uh but everybody in town is starts spreading rumors about it so saint george comes into town okay and they eventually form an agreement where they'll do a fake fight in front of everybody and oh, uh pretend yeah. to tame the dragon right and but every it ends with everybody you know uh being uh friends basically yeah yeah i that's right i mean i've definitely read it but it was a long time ago but uh yeah the original saint george story involves saint george driving the dragon into town taming it and then cutting off its head Mm. so uh that is also so it's more related probably to the original saint george story than necessarily the reluctant dragon yeah but there's definitely connections there well well i mean it it was clearly around that time people were doing the whole yeah uh, you know and and this story is very clearly written like it's you know purporting to be a medieval folktale but it's very clearly written in the victorian or edwardian style of like a fairy tale for kids right Mm -hmm. it's kind of you know cutesy and knowing and 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 uh and it's it doesn't have the voice of an actual folktale basically uh Uh, no no not really and Uh, it's you know it's trying to be kind of witty well it it is it's a witty version of it you know uh it also reminded me at least in part of a lord dunsany story as Mm. things often do um called the tower of the giblins Mm -hmm. which is mostly not about this but it involves a small part where uh where the knight character mm-hmm. uh, goes to a dragon and threatens him, and saying that uh, knights always prevail in tales, so the dragon becomes afraid because mm. you know they're in a tale. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so it's it's meta in that way. But the knight uh, gets the dragon to uh, fly him across the forest impassable. Hmm. Okay. Well, the, and and then the one I thought it, it wasn't specifically mentioned by any of the assist uh, the materials I saw, but it really reminds me of the story of the brave little tailor. Uh, if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. one, which is uh, it's one of the brothers Grimm's story, um, so it's a German story. That means, and in that that's the version where uh, a tailor's you know sitting, uh, just I think get waiting for a pie to cool or something, and uh, so you see some flies 
buzzing around and he swats them and he gets seven all at once and he's you know he's kind of a fool he's but he's you know he's very egotistical so he's he's so proud of himself he he makes a belt that says uh, seven at one blow because of how proud he is and so that spins out into a story about this guy who who got seven and everyone thinks he means humans right mm-hmm. and then he ends up being sent to kill a giant and uh you know he basically keeps uh, impressing the giant you know he's he's sort of smart enough to like for instance the giant is able to grab a stone and squeeze a drop of water out of it and uh he takes a cheese and squeezes it until the whey comes out so that he thinks he's way the giant thinks he's way stronger than him all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's ba- but it's it's the classic sort of uh you know he he bluffs his way through life and keeps getting good things happen to him basically oh, yeah. uh, and it had a lot of the same uh, elements of that uh, as this basically where he's he's a you know, he, he kind of keeps prevailing by being really lucky, not actually having any skill or yeah. anything. So. Well, yeah, Giles is definitely very lucky, though he does get brave at points. But yeah. mostly it's through uh, through the fact that he keeps winning, so he gets confident. Well, like I said, the brave little tailor. It's yeah. about how he's brave with nothing to back it up, basically. Yeah, yeah. But he keeps, he's brave enough that it works out. Um, so. But yeah, um, oh, there's a bit, this is kind of a, another tangent about the book, but um, there's a bit where... Uh, the the uh oh sorry what what's the position pastor no he's not a pastor parson parson thank you yeah um i keep wanting to say priest because yeah, he well. would be catholic because it's before the reformation but uh well it's a it's a yeah yeah it's the the town priest yeah, yeah. the the parson um uh, it, well hang on i'm not familiar with the this is are, are priests only catholic i thought you could have a, a, a oh yeah there, there are other religion. priests in other religions but yeah it just uh i thought that a catholic i don't know i can't okay. remember yeah it's been a while since i've been religious and i was barely religious anyway um but uh so the uh the parson is described as uh as a man of letters is described as having uh foresight uh and at one and uh suggests to giles that he should bring a rope when he goes to uh confront the dragon because uh and that that comes in handy because he ropes the uh uh treasure to his back um uh but that's probably a joke about as a man of letters he can see into the future and that's right amusing to tolkien because he was a translator himself right so, right yeah well it's like the joke about at one point he talks about the learned clerks of oxford uh which is just a reference to the oxford dictionary yeah, yeah. uh which is where apparently tolkien worked initially after uh, world war one um mm-hmm. He literally got his first job working for the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, which is kind of cool. He 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 really did come up from not much, from what I can tell. He didn't actually have any real uh, like he, he you know he he didn't have any family connections or anything, which were a big deal in England uh, at the time. And mm-hmm. he got he got sort of pushed into going off into World War One. That was I was reading the story. I mean, slight tangent, but I was actually reading this. St- There's a movie out right now about Tolkien uh, and his. Oh, I was his wondering life. when we get yeah, to that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, I haven't seen the movie, but uh, from what I was reading about his life, it was you know he he basically uh, he met a girl. Uh, he was being he was he he was raised by uh, a priest uh, after his parents died. Um, and, uh, he said he learned a lot from him and that made him very religious cause he was Catholic and he, um, he, he was, um, he, he met this girl who he fell madly in love with Edith, uh, forget her, Edith Tolkien eventually. Um, and, uh, 
the priest basically said it's not right for you to uh, to be courting a girl before you're of age. So you have to break it off and never talk to her until you become of age, basically. So he wasn't allowed to even like write to her and say why he broke it off. So they waited, you know, a couple years till he turned. 18 or 19 then he wrote back then he found tracked her down and she was actually engaged at that point and and he said um you know and she said i thought you just didn't like me anymore you ran off he's like no the priest said i could not talk to you until i was of age so then he, she was like oh well that changes everything she broke off her engagement which got everyone angry and the thing is he was just nobody he they, they were engaged to someone she, you know she was engaged to someone with you know some prospects basically mm-hmm. and he didn't have any prospects so she then but they were so obviously they were very much in love. So they got married and then almost immediately Tolkien had to go off to World War One. <laughs> so that was like, well, oh, you could have just dumped this guy and then he could have died in World War One and you would have been you would have been out of luck. But and of course he made it through World War One and that was you know, people always compare Lord uh, Ty Lord of the Rings to um World War Two. Uh but Tolkien himself was pretty adamant that's like, no, it was my experience in World War One more than anything that really shaped it. And he also said it wasn't an allegory for anything. No, no. Because he didn't like allegories. So. Yeah, he, well, he was, yeah, he was very loud about that. Uh, but, I mean, you can see that, you know, like the the spirit of war and and yeah. You know, oh, yeah, lingering yeah. doom and all that. Like, obviously, this was something that was written around the time of the World War One and World War Two. Oh, yeah, but, definitely. And and uh, say the, the scene where uh, Frodo and Sam are sort of conscript, conscripted into the orc army mm-hmm. by accident. Right. Uh, the, you know, the, the orcs are calling him maggot. And, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said he really felt... Because uh, he was... It, it's He had a very kind of lofty upper-class attitude in some ways, even though he wasn't really upper-class from what I can tell. Uh, but he said, you know, I saw a lot of, you know, gen- supposed gentlemen not acting like gentlemen, and I saw mm-hmm. a lot of regular folks who were who good, decent people. Um, and... and yeah, that you know, he said whenever the orcs are talking, it's probably like soldiers talk he picked up in World War One, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Hobbit movies uh, have a lot of problems, but I got the DVDs anyway, because mm-hmm. or the Blu-rays anyway, because uh, mostly for the you know concept art and stuff from from my perspective, because I really like that stuff. But on one of the uh, documentaries, a uh, uh, one of the Tolkien scholars that they have on those things was uh, talking about how Smaug was uh, sort of meant to be a reclamation of the old medieval-style dragon, that it's sort of... Because uh, in the Victorian times, most dragon stories were like the reluctant dragon, where they right. were, it was uh, sort of subverting that, mm. but Tolkien wanted to go back to the old-style, you know, actually threatening dragon. Huh, and it's, uh, it's interesting uh, in that light that uh, Tolkien actually wrote one of the sort of yeah. non-threatening dragon. Like, yeah. he does... He kills people like this dragon, right. unlike the one in the reluctant dragon does right is murderous, but he ends up uh being tame and kind of cowardly and yeah well he's he's comical yeah, yeah. The, the whole book is written very whimsically and mm-hmm. it's not it's not yeah the dragon in a weird way I mean he's threat, but the joke is that this guy who doesn't know what he's doing beats the dragon yeah basically uh but yeah the, and the, and like I say the the dragon's written as kind of like a banker or something almost mm-hmm. who cares about oh yeah there, there's a there's a bit about uh uh, uh, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it was it was modern terms about uh, how he was he was expecting oh uh, interest paid or something. Yeah, he talks about yeah. interest, and he talks yeah. about yeah, yeah. So it, it's it, yeah, as you say, I think it was the sense that Victorians 
had a somewhat detached attitude towards fair there's a uh, fairy tales and so on there's a there's a book called well there's a series of books called the blue fairy book the yellow fairy book yeah by i believe stephen lang is the guy's name uh and it was a collection of old stories but they're told in that victorian style which is kind of you know i don't want to say tongue-in-cheek but it's almost done like knowingly it's not it, it it's less you know compared to say the brothers Grimm, which is very straightforward uh, sincere telling of the story. It's it's told with a bit of uh, you know, and or if you read something like Peter Pan, it's got that mm-hmm. kind of uh, whimsy to it. Um, but yeah, as you say, Smaug goes back to yeah. Even though it's a children's book, it's still yeah. He, he's very much a threat, and he's not ever treated as right. as a joke. Well, you can see that evolution throughout Tolkien's work because he's writing the the Hobbit, and like I say, he's writing Father Farmer Giles of Ham and the Hobbit at the same time, and they're both you know, very kid-friendly book, but The Hobbit gets those darker and more serious notes. Even as it, even in The Hobbit, as it goes, it gets darker, more serious. Um, and, um, like Beowulf, like Gollum was always inspired by, um, uh, Grendel and Beowulf Mm -hmm. to a large degree. And, and he was of course an expert on Beowulf, uh, Tolkien. And, uh, you can just see it kind of getting like, you know, he's the, the Hobbit, the point of The Hobbit, especially in Lord of the Rings is that the Hobbits are like, kids story characters who find themselves in a much darker and more serious adult mythological world um he he even ended up saying like when he 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 decided not to publish the silmarillion because you know he felt like if there weren't any hobbits it would be harder to relate to it because the hobbits are the everyman Mm -hmm. in in this much more and it's very notable, even in Lord of the Rings, that the hobbits talk like basically contemporary contemporaneous people whereas you know even the humans like Strider don't, they, yeah, they talk yeah. more like they're from King Arthur or from some mm-hmm. kind of legendary. They don't use these and thous usually. Some of them do, but. No, uh, but it, they're still written as yeah, a, as oh, a bit more remote yeah. and, less, and less human than the hobbits, ironically, since the, they're human and the hobbits aren't. Yeah. But that, that's exactly what they're supposed to represent, of course. Definitely they're, supposed to be uh, audience uh, viewpoint characters. Right. They're supposed to, they're supposed to re- represent the, you know, the triumph of the humble, mm-hmm. vulgar, regular, every person against the backdrop of heroes and. Uh, yeah, and God-like Farmer entities. Giles as a book sort of has that. Yeah, and, exactly. But it's a, I feel it's a little more detached. It's less... Uh, it, it feels farther away from the subject matter than The Hobbit does. Well, it, yeah, because it's because it's it's of the comedic element. It's yeah. kind of... It's like Hobbit, at the end of the day, isn't comedic. There's some funny parts, mm-hmm. but it takes Bilbo seriously. It takes the Avengers seriously. This is more like, you know... Uh, someone yeah like i say it's a joking retelling of a quote real medieval story even though it isn't so yeah it's it's got that it's going to have that detachment to it essentially yeah uh but i would like to see this as uh like i half would and half wouldn't like to see this adapted into a like an animated movie or something yeah like i'm worried that they would make it too much like what they did with the hobbit movies with you know <laughs> three a three book well series. maybe not like stretch it out that much but like try to tie it into lord of the rings stuff too much yeah. or play up that element yeah but i i think that like as is it would make like a good like mm-hmm. little children's yeah movie i don't know well it's fascinating to me they're making a, a, a lord of the rings 
movie or series on Amazon, which is not going to be based directly on any of the books, from what I can tell. Yeah, it's uh, like set between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. Well, it's it's using some of the material. The Silmarillion doesn't actually does actually co- uh, cover a lot of mm-hmm. period. The bulk of what we call the Silmarillion is set in the First Age, uh, but there's some other stuff later about how Sauron forged the Three Rings and stuff, and that seems to be what they're what they're using as the basis for this story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of material there. Tolkien literally wrote. So much material, they ended up collecting it as, I think, a 10-book set called Morgoth's Ring, uh, which has all his sort of revi- revisions and ideas. And there's all I haven't read it, but I know this. The Silmarillion, as we know it, is essentially written by his son, Christopher Tolkien. Yeah. Because he had to just pare it down and re-edit it and find which version of every story was going to fit. And, and mm-hmm. so there's actually quite a lot of license taken that maybe doesn't quite fit with what Tolkien might have potentially wanted, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, kind of interesting. But speaking of Christopher Tolkien, who's very, um, uh, I don't want to say propri- proprietary, but mm-hmm. uh, he's very, uh, uh, I don't see him giving up the rights to some to, to the stuff that they don't have the rights to already. Right. But yeah, there's all these rights issues with all yeah, the Tolkien stuff. But uh, I don't imagine that Farmer Giles, even if they did have the rights, would ever be made adapted into anything. Probably not. Yeah, it was... But I'd like... You know, it would yeah. it would be fun. Well, all his stuff got uh, sort of re-released uh, after Lord of the Rings became a success. But by that point, like the real boom for Lord of the Rings was, I believe, the late 50s, early 60s when it caught on in america mm-hmm. uh but by that point he basically retired from writing and he made a lot of money off it but there was it was the kind of oh how are we gonna milk this guy for more stuff and he yeah. didn't have that much more to do yeah other than but uh, also uh farmer giles uh you mentioned the in the intro that i i read but you wrote it um that uh it's an interesting peek into sort of an alternate history of what uh you know Maybe Tolkien, maybe this got popular in, instead right. of The Hobbit, and yeah. this is what Tolkien, this is the sort of thing Tolkien focused on. Like, how would the world be different? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, I doubt that would have ever been as popular as The Hobbit, but it's kind of like he focused on The Hobbit and fleshed it out into a big story yeah. instead of Farmer Giles of Ham. And yeah. it, it is, you can see a lot of the same themes and ideas, basically, that mm. basically went to The Hobbit instead of Farmer Giles of Ham. But that, that is, in some ways, it's a rough draft for The Hobbit, in, yeah. thematically. It's still fun though. Yeah, it's good. And it's it's very short. Uh, I I would recommend it definitely, especially if you're into Tolkien. But uh, even if you're not, like it's it's not as mm-hmm. ponderous uh, as Tolkien's reputation often gives him. Sure. Like I I don't think that's justified necessarily. But like a lot of people say, Tolkien's writing is is very. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he he could do yeah. He, well, it, it, Lord of the Rings is again because it's that weird straddling of kids book and uh, adult scholarly work, like his his big nerdy thing that mm-hmm. he had going with the Silmarillion. I actually think in some ways it's one of his more awkward books <laughs> for that exact reason. In places, yeah, it, yeah. It, has, it has the highest highs, but it also has some yeah. some weird elements. Well, like I say, because it was a weird fit between yeah. Those two things. But uh, this is, it, it's just a fun little book. It, it, you can read it in a day. It's like less than a day. Um, it's uh, it's fun. Yep. Check it out. That's it for What Mad Universe this week. I'm farmer Adamilius Ahinobarbus Willius Agricola de Prasso. And with me is my trusty dog, Phil. Help, help. <laughs> Our theme song is by Jack Furick, the great dragon of the waste, and producer Alex Ross, Rex Tyrannus et Basilius. Until next time, may you all live happily ever after.